Chapter 27, Part 2 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Part 2 What may your business here be, young man? said Parsons, eyeing him from top to toe. I called in, sir, to inquire whether you happen to want a spinner, and what the wages may be, said Michael. Is it for yourself? demanded Parsons, knitting his brows and looking at him with a sort of incredulous sneer. "'Why, no, sir, it is for a kinsman who happens to be out of employ,' replied Michael, colouring from the unusual consciousness of deceit, and from the same cause casting his eyes upon the ground, thereby displaying the remarkable length of his black eyelashes, and giving to his whole countenance a look much more resembling that of former days than he had worn when he first entered. Parsons looked at him with a sort of vague idea that he had seen him before. "'Where do you come from?' said he. "'From Westmoreland, sir.' I have been living in service there for these four years past. And, pray, what may your name be? Robert Thornton, sir, replied Michael, blushing again, as he thus unceremoniously borrowed the appellation of his worthy master. Have you ever worked in a factory yourself? Yes, sir, I have when I was a boy, said Michael, from mere want of skill and hardihood in the art of lying. And you think you have bettered yourself, I suppose, with your fine buff waistcoat and the rest of it? No, we don't want no spinners here. Michael by no means unwillingly obeyed this dismissal, and walked away more than half ashamed of his achievement. If I didn't know that Michael Armstrong was dead, I should swear that their chap was him, said a girl somewhat older than our imprudent masquerader, and who had been watching him very earnestly during the foregoing conversation. The observation was not addressed to the overlooker, but to another girl, who had brought the speaker her dinner to prevent her leaving some particular work on which she was employed. "'What's that you say, Sykes?' said Parsons, turning quickly towards her. "'I was saying, sir, as that boy was unaccountable like Michael Armstrong, as used to live in Mother's back kitchen. He wasn't above a year or two younger than me, and I knowed him as well as I did my own brothers. Stuff and nonsense, girl!' All the world knows that young rascal died years ago, and fuss enough there was made about it by that mad miss at Milford, who I suppose found out that she was their cousin, or something of the sort, for she took it so to heart, that she sold her house and lands and ran away with another of em to some foreign country, for fear he should die too. Sure you must mind all that queer story. Yes, sir, replied the girl. I remember it right well, and that's the reason why I says that I know it can't be him. Yet, upon my soul, now you mention it, he was the very image of him. I fancied as I looked at him that surely I had seen him somewhere before. But it can't be. A dead dog is dead all the world over. Yes, sure, sir, responded Kitty Sykes, who, being what is called a very sightly girl, was not unfrequently indulged with a little condescending notice from Mr. Parsons. But twas his queer curly black hair and his particular looking eyes as put it into my head. "'And if you go on talking of it, Sykes, in that way, "'you will be putting it into my head, too. "'And after all, there is nothing so very impossible in it. "'Nobody in these parts could really know much about it, you see, "'and there's no reason, as I can tell, "'why the scamp might have not run away from the deep. "'That is, the stocking weaver's manufactory as he was sent prentice to, "'and, as they ought to have stopped him, "'might have given out that he was dead,' replied the overlooker. "'Then if it was possible,' resumed Kitty Sykes, I wouldn't mind taking my bodily oath that that there young fellow was Michael Armstrong and nobody else. Egad, I wish I hadn't let him go, cried Parsons, running to the gates. He was prentice till twenty-one, and if he has run away, 
He's liable to be taken up and put in prison by the first as catches him. Kitty Sykes took the liberty of running to the gates also, but, to say the truth, she had no wish at all that Mr. Parsons should catch him up and put him into prison. The girl, though she had prudence enough not to communicate the opinion to her friend Mr. Parsons, thought the stranger by far the handsomest young fellow she had ever seen and secretly determined, if she could catch sight of him again, that she would give him a hint to keep clear of his old acquaintance. "'There he goes!' cried Parsons, watching Michael as with upright gait and rapid strides he was pursuing his way by the well-remembered path, which led from the factory to Dowling Lodge. "'There he goes!' He don't look like one of the mill people anyway. And yet the fellow said that he had worked in a factory. Didn't you hear him, Kitty? Yes, sir, replied the girl. And it was just then that I felt so unaccountable sure that, unless it was out and out impossible, it must be Michael Armstrong as was speaking. I never did see such eyes of Michael's, not such hair neither. And there he goes, I'll bet a sovereign, rejoined the overlooker, to take a look at his old quarters at the lodge. Kitty, I'll give you a glass of gin and a shilling if you'll run after him. You can run like a hare, I know. Run and bring him back, Kitty, there's a darling, and say as I've got some good news to tell him. Off started the girl with right good will, having her own reasons for wishing to do the errand, as well as a very sufficient inclination to gain the promised reward. Mr. Parsons by no means overrated her running powers, and had she been less fleet, she would have failed in her object, for Michael walked briskly, and without any inclination to remain longer in the vicinity of the mill, though by no means conscious that he had been recognized. He had just turned the corner of a hedge when the girl overtook him, so that their colloquy did not take place within sight of the overlooker. Michael heard the fair Kitty's approach, and turned to see who it was that thus came galloping and panting after him. "'Do you want me, young woman?' said he, civilly stopping for her. "'Well, then, you are no changeling,' replied the girl, laying her hand on his arm. "'You were always out and out the civilest boy in the mill.' A very bright suffusion dyed the clear brown of Michael's cheek as he heard this. "'I do not know what you mean,' he replied. "'Come, come, Michael Armstrong,' rejoined Kitty. "'You needn't be afraid of me. "'Don't you remember Kitty Sykes, as have gone to and from the mill with you and Teddy, a hundred and a hundred times?' "'Is it indeed Kitty Sykes grown into such a handsome young woman?' said Michael, holding out his hand to her, and feeling quite incapable of preserving his incognito in the presence of so old an acquaintance. "'And to think of your knowing me, Kitty. But you must not betray me, my dear girl. If I was found out for Michael Armstrong, I might get into a scrape.' "'And that's true and no lie,' answered the faithless ambassadress, "'for I am sent after you by that old beast Parsons.' to tell you to come back because he had good news for you. But his news would be just to give you notice to march into prison for having run away. And I agreed to carry his message for him. He thinks that I delight in him, the old monster. But I'd rather walk a mile to do a kindness to you, Michael, than stir an inch to please him. God bless you, my dear girl. I hope you have done me a great service now. For I think I could show him leg bail that he would find it difficult to refuse, Kitty. So now good-bye, old friend. I am sorry to part so soon, but it won't do to stay here to be caught, will it? No, truly, Mike, I'd be loath to see any friend of mine at his mercy, or at that of his master, either. But you won't go clear away out of the country without seeing me again, will you? You needn't be afeard of him. Twill be easy enough to put him off the scent. I'll back, and tell that we was both of us altogether deceived, 
and that you beant no more Michael Armstrong than he be. I don't think I ought to stay in Ashley now, Kitty. There's others may know me as well as you and he, and twould be a terrible change, I can tell you, my dear girl, to come down from the hills where I am tending a good master's sheep, and often feel so high and so happy, that I think I am half way to heaven. It would be a terrible change, Kitty, to come from that into the Deep Valley Mill again, which is as much worse than our old factory here as hanging is worse than whipping. Lord, have mercy upon em, then, ejaculated the poor girl. But I say, Michael, you needn't run no risk at all if I go back and say it isn't you, and then you might meet me after nightfall in the town. It will not be very long, Kitty, before I am one and twenty and a free man, and it's then, please heaven, that I'll come back again and pay the old place a visit. You have been kind enough to remember me so long that I don't think you'll have forgotten me by that time, and it shall go hard with me, but I'll bring you a token from some of our North Country fairs. So saying, he gave the damsel a kiss, and she wrung his hand without making any further effort to detain him. God bless you, said the retreating Michael over his shoulder. And God bless you too, you nice boy, muttered poor Kitty. I wouldn't ask no better luck than just to follow you and keep sheep too. Either from wishing to look after him as long as he was in sight, or for the purpose of giving him law, in case Mr. Parsons should determine on pursuit, Kitty Sykes remained stationary on the spot where Michael left her, till, abandoning his hardy project of a visit to Dowling Lodge, he had stretched far away over the fields towards the road he was to pursue northwards to his peaceful home. And then she walked leisurely back to the factory where, after a sharp reproof, for staying so long, and a pert reply to it, she informed the overlooker that they had both been wrong, but that the young lad said he might be found if he was wanted at the sign of the magpie, that was about a mile on the road towards London. Warned by this unexpected recognition, Michael determined to run no more risks among his town folks, but not being disposed to lose the little bundle he had deposited at the nag's head, he ensconced himself within the shelter of a small public house on the roadside, resolved to wait there till the evening set in, and then to venture back to his last night's lodging, pay his bill, reclaim his bundle, and set forth upon a night march which he hoped would take him beyond all danger of Mr. Parsons before the following morning. Having secured his welcome by the usual ceremony of ordering a meal, Michael looked about him for some means of occupation during the hours which he had doomed himself to pass there, and in despair of finding any better literary amusement, seized upon a heap of handbills of a vast variety of external forms, but having, as he found upon examination, one and all the same object, namely the calling together a general meeting of the whole county of York, then undivided, for the purpose of signing a petition to Parliament for a law limiting the hours of labour in factories to ten hours a day. Michael Armstrong was no longer a factory operative. Free as the air he breathed upon his beloved mountaintops, he no longer trembled at the omnipotent frown of an overlooker, nor sickened as he watched the rising sun that was to set again long hours before his stifling labor ceased. All this was over and ended with him forever. Yet did his heart throb and his eye kindle as he perused page after page of the arousing call which summoned tens of thousands, nay, hundreds of thousands to use the right their country vested in them, of imploring mercy and justice from the august tripartite power that ruled the land. Very powerful was the male and simple eloquence with which many of these unpretending compositions appealed to the paternal feelings of those they addressed, and such terribly true representations were found among them of the well-remembered agonies of his boyhood, 
that Michael was fain to put his spread hand before his face to conceal the emotions they produced. He had sat in this situation for some minutes, revolving both his former sufferings and the blessedness of his present release from them, when a man, who had been quietly sitting writing at a distant window, but had nevertheless found leisure to watch Michael's countenance as he proceeded with his examination of the handbills, rose from his place, and gently approaching him said in deep yet very gentle voice, "'You seem moved by the perusal of these papers, my good friend. "'Is it the first time you have met with them?' "'Yes, indeed, sir, it is,' replied Michael, starting from his reverie. "'Then I presume you are a stranger in this part of the country?' "'Why, yes, sir. The master I serve is a Westmoreland statesman, "'and I am only come this way upon a holiday trip.' "'Then maybe you don't care enough for the poor factory operatives "'to join their meeting and put your name to their petition?' "'If caring for them could do them any good, master,' replied Michael warmly, "'they would be in no want of help as long as I was near them. "'But I don't think the name of a poor servant-boy like me "'could do them either honour or service. "'Then what sort of names, my good lad, "'do you suppose will support this petition? "'Do you think the great mill-owners will sign it? "'Do you think such men as Sir Matthew Dowling, for instance, "'whom you may have heard spoken of down at Ashley?' Maybe, do you think it will be such as he, whose first object in life is to get as many hours of labor out of the little creatures that work for him, as stripes can make them give, do you think it will be such as he, that will sign the ten hours bill? Not if that bill is either to hurt himself or better the children, I should think, said Michael. True enough, replied his new acquaintance. And not only is that true, but he and the like of him will do all that mortal men can to prevent all others from signing it. But heaven forbid they should succeed, young man, for if they do, the best hope of many thousand suffering and most helpless human beings will fall to the ground. Then indeed may heaven forbid that they should have their will, returned Michael fervently. When is this meeting to take place? He added, turning his eyes again to the papers he still held in his hand. But three days hence, truly I should like to witness it. Is there any reason against your doing it? demanded the stranger. "'Will your services be wanted by your master before that time?' "'He won't expect me till two or three days after it,' replied Michael. "'I have done all I wanted. "'At least I have stayed as long as I wished at Ashley, "'and I don't see any great harm there would be in witnessing the meeting.' "'Do see it, my good lad,' said the stranger. "'I predict that it will offer a spectacle such as never was witnessed before, "'and most likely never will or can be seen again. "'A multitude!' probably amounting to above a hundred thousand overworked operatives, will meet in peace and good order to petition for legal relief from the oppression of a system which has brought them to a lower state of degradation and misery than any to which human beings have ever been brought before. Were those in whom these poor people have confidence less deeply anxious to preserve the public peace than they are, a different mode of redress might be sought for. But as it is, an honest man may venture to advise such a respectable young fellow as you seem to be, to stretch your good master's leave a little, in order to be present at this great spectacle. A good deal more conversation followed on the same theme, and ere Michael had ceased to listen to his companion, he felt convinced that duty as well as inclination would lead him to do all that a loyal subject and peaceable citizen could, in aid of the suffering class from whose ranks he had so miraculously escaped. In a word, Michael Armstrong determined to attend the great Yorkshire meeting and hold up his hand for the ten hours' bill. 
the extraordinary circumstances attending that enormous meeting, the unaccountable disappointments which at every halting place attended all the precautionary efforts of the committee to procure bread for the multitude, while beer was everywhere found ready, and in the greatest abundance, the terror felt by those most interested, lest heat, fatigue, exhaustion, and beer together might lead to some disturbance of the peace, and the triumphant influence of reason and kindness joined in inducing the hungry multitude to separate peaceably are always matters of history, and the narrative must therefore adhere to the fortunes of its hero without dwelling upon nobler themes. In returning to Ashley for his bundle, Michael took good care to be as little seen as possible. He was in fact more than ever anxious to avoid detection, as the more he meditated on his recollections of Sir Matthew Dowling and Parsons, the more did he feel convinced that should he fall into their power before the age of twenty-one, matters would go very hard with him. At the great assembling of the people at York, he feared not that he should encounter any enemy. The only human beings whom he could so designate being likely to show themselves at the most distant part of the kingdom, rather than before the face of the multitude to be expected there. No feelings of distrust or alarm, therefore, arose to check the pleasurable excitement which this expedition was calculated to inspire, and Michael, with his stout staff over his shoulder and the cotton handkerchief containing a change of linen suspended from it, set out with a light heart and an active step upon a walk in which he soon found himself joined by many thousand companions. The assurance given him by his unknown acquaintance that he should see a wonderful and spirit-stirring spectacle was fully verified. The very sight of the road along which he travelled, which looked like a dark and mighty current moving irresistibly along, while tributary streams flowed into it on all sides, so thick and serried was the mass that moved along it, was of itself worth the toil it cost him to behold its peaceful tumult. From time to time Michael indulged in a little questioning of the various individuals beside whom he found himself. But, for the most part, the men were too intent upon the object of their expedition to converse idly respecting it, and, by degrees, our hero grew as silent as the rest, and trudged on without any other communion than that of his own thoughts. It was at about twenty miles' distance from York, when the multitude were on their return, that a circumstance occurred which, being of considerable importance to Michael, must be detailed somewhat at length. He had entered an inn by the roadside, which, being one of the largest post-houses on the north road, had an air of pretension and costliness about it, that caused the great majority of the host to walk on, without venturing to approach precincts so dangerous. But Michael was much exhausted, and having already discovered, when passing before the humbler houses of public entertainment, that no rest could be hoped for from entering them, every inch of space being occupied, he deemed it wisest to disperse a splendid shilling rather than fag on till he had no strength to go further. In pursuance of this reasoning, he entered the kitchen of the Royal Oak and called for bread, cheese, and a pint of beer. Though there were not many of his fellow travellers either rich or extravagant enough to share these splendid quarters with him, there were, nevertheless, three or four men taking refreshment in the apartment. One of these, an elderly respectable-looking personage, who had, as it seemed, exclusive possession of a snug little round table in a corner, made a sign to Michael to share it with him. This was gratefully accepted, the loaf and cheese were already there, and the foaming tankard quickly followed. "'I marked you at the meeting,' said his sociable companion. "'It did my heart good to see a sprinkling here and there of them that come out of pure love and kindness to their poor fellow-creatures, having nothing themselves to gain.' "'Tis a pity and a sin, too, that so many Englishmen stand idly by, 
when such a business as this is afoot, just as if they had nothing to do with it. But they are one and all mistaken, and that they may chance to find out, too, one of these days. You give me credit for more than I deserve, perhaps, replied Michael. That is, if you think my heart was enough with the poor factory folks to make me take a long roundabout to sign with them, without having had some knowledge of their sufferings myself. You are right in thinking that I am not one of them now, but I have been, and heaven forbid I should ever forget it, for the keeping that time mind is quite enough to make everything that comes to me now seem light and easy. You have worked in a factory, said the other in an accent of surprise. I should never have guessed as much, but you are very rightful to be thankful for the present, instead of ashamed for the past. But I don't think, he added, eyeing the fine person of Michael from head to foot, I don't think I ever saw a lad who showed so little signs of having suffered in health and limb from it. Some lucky accident must have taken you away early. I have seen many a boy and girl crippled for life, replied Michael, before they were as old as I was when I ran away. My good fellow, whispered his companion, don't you use them words again. You are safe with me, I promise you, but if you ran from indentures, you won't do wisely to tell of it. You must blame your own kind and friendly looks, said Michael, smiling. I know well enough that what you say is true, and it isn't a thing I should have told to many. But excepting just now that I took a fancy to come back and take a look about the old place where I was born, I have got so clear and clean away from mills and mill owners that I have grown rather bolder, maybe, than I ought to be. My business now, thank heaven, is sheep-tending upon the beautiful free hills of Westmoreland. You may well be thankful for such a change, replied his friendly companion. It must have been some unaccountable good luck, for in general a runaway factory prentice is hunted down and caught long before he has got among the good hill folks. It was indeed a blessed chance for me, said Michael with deep feeling. I fell into the hands of the best man and the best master that ever a wretched runaway hit upon. I almost wonder at you, then, venturing to come within sight of your own place again. You can't be one and twenty yet by your looks, and you would not over well like to work but your time in a factory, I should think, said the other. I don't think I should, replied Michael, laughing, and I have run some risk, I promised you already, of the very thing you talk of since I left my master's house. Nothing would content my foolish fancy for calling back old times but going to look at the very factory where I first worked, and talking to the identical tyrant who tortured me there. But he did not know you, I hope, said the old man. I can hardly say that he did not, replied Michael, for some notion or other came into his head, and after I left him he sent for me to come back again. It was, however, by a friendly messenger who knew well enough who I was, and gave me pretty plainly to understand which way I had better walk, and that was good luck again. But I was sorry, too, to have to turn away from the old place without learning any news of my former acquaintance. I found the same overlooker at Sir Matthew Dowling's mill, and that was all I could find out. Sir Matthew Dowling's mill at Ashley? That's my country, too. My wife keeps a school at Milford, replied the man, and we have heard enough of Sir Matthew. Can you tell me anything about his daughter Martha? demanded Michael, with the appearance of being greatly interested in the inquiry. 
She was very kind to me, and I loved her next best, I think, to my own dear mother and brother. Do you happen to know anything about her? Not just at present, replied the man, though they do say that all the family are likely to have a downfall owing to Sir Matthew's getting into a scrape about bad bills or something or other t'other side the water. But I do well remember something particular about Miss Martha that you talk of, a matter of seven years ago. And if she was good to you, it was more than she was to everybody, for it was all along of a cruel piece of treachery of hers that I lost the best mistress that ever man had. I dare say, if you come from Ashley, you must know the name of Miss Brotherton, though it's long since she left Milford. I was her coachman, and if it had not been for Miss Martha Dowling, I believe I might have been so still. I was but just turned ten years old at the time I knew Miss Martha, returned Michael, but I shouldn't have thought she could be treacherous to anybody. She was, though, for all our people knew the whole story from first to last, and a queer story it was, too, when one thinks of the end of it, which was neither more nor less than sending our dear young lady away out of the country. I never happened to know anything about the lady who owned the park, replied Michael except that she was one of the fine folks as I have seen at Dolling Lodge, but I should like to hear the story because of Miss Martha. Why, the short and the long of it was that there was a poor widow called Armstrong. Michael started so violently that his companion stopped. Did you happen to know her, my lad? He added after a pause. Yes, sir, I remember her very well, but please do go on. Well, then... This widow Armstrong had two sons, and one of them was had up to the great house, Dowling Lodge, I mean, for some nonsensical reason or other. And Sir Matthew pretended to make the greatest fuss in the world about him, and the whole country was talking about it. But for some offence of the poor boys, I never rightly heard what, the old sinner determined upon sending him prentice to the most infernal place, by all account, that the earth has got to be ashamed of. And how do you think the poor widow was coaxed over to sign the indentures? Why, by your friend Miss Martha and no one else, and that I know upon the best authority. Well, tis a long story, the ins and outs of it, and I can't say that I ever rightly understood the whole, but this I know to be fact, that our young mistress took the whole thing so much to heart that she actually set out to look after the boy. But when she got to the murderous place, the poor little fellow was dead. And what did she do then, dear, tender-hearted lady, but bring back a pretty little girl instead of him, because, as we all guessed, she was determined to save somebody. The emotion of Michael Armstrong on hearing this was so entirely beyond his power to conquer that he lost all capability of utterance, and instead of asking the name of the little girl— an inquiry which he in vain strove to make, he sat pale and gasping, with his eyes fixed on the speaker, and every limb trembling. "'The Lord have mercy on us! What is the matter with you, my good fellow?' said Miss Brotherton's ci-devant coachman. "'You look cruel bad. Is it my tale as turns you so? Or is it that you have walked too much and too fast?' "'No, no, no! Pray, go on!' murmured Michael, making a strong effort to articulate. "'Tis the story, then, 
"'And you knowed the poor Armstrongs beyond all doubt,' said the kind-hearted coachman. "'Well, then, you shall hear the end of it. "'When my mistress brought back the news of the little fellow's death, "'his poor mother, who was but a sickly, cripply sort of body, "'just broke her heart and died. "'Whereupon Miss Brotherton took home the other boy, "'put him to school to my wife, "'and then took to teaching him herself, "'and treated him for all the world as if he had been her own brother.' and then she began to fancy that he wanted a doctor. And then, groaned Michael, suddenly interrupting him, and then he died. You don't say so, said the coachman in an accent of regret. Did he indeed, poor boy? Well, now, I'm sorry for that, for it was a pleasure to see him growing taller and stouter every day, almost as one may say. And when was it he died? It's curious that we should never have heard of it. Heard of it, said Michael, while a sort of wild uncertainty took possession of his mind that gave him the feeling of one whose reason threatened to leave him. Heard it? Why did you want to hear it? Could you not see and know it if he was living in the same house with you? For certain I could, if he had died while Miss Brotherton remained at the park. But that he did not for I drove him off the first stage myself, alive and well, and looking as beautiful as he always did, poor lad, for he was, to be sure, the handsomest-faced boy that ever I looked upon. But what might have happened to him afterwards is, of course, more than I can say. For when the place was sold, and all of us paid off, all we heard was, that our dear young lady was set off to travel in foreign countries, and had left pensions to every one of her servants according to their length of service. So we know nothing since. Is there no one can tell me where she has gone, and in what land my brother died? said Michael, violently agitated. Your brother? said his companion. Who do you mean by your brother, my lad? Teddy, my brother Edward. I am Michael Armstrong, was the convulsive reply. God bless my heart and soul! and you be the boy as Miss Brotherton went to look after. And she got it into the wrong box, then, about your being dead. Was there ever anything like that? But who was it, my boy, that told you your brother was dead? A woman in Ashley, one living in the house where my mother died. She told me that my mother was dead, and my brother, too. Did she know who she was speaking to? Did she know you was Michael Armstrong? said the old coachman with quickness. No, she knew me not, replied Michael. But she knew that the widow Armstrong and her boy were dead. And I'll be hanged if I believe as your brother is dead, replied the other eagerly. When she said the widow's boy, she meant you. I'll lay my life on it. And there is nobody in Ashley if they had told of her death, but would have named that of her boy, too but it would have always been meaning you, because everybody knew that one followed close upon the news of the other. And I don't believe that your brother's dead, and that's a fact. Michael clasped his hands rigidly together, and closing his eyes remained so long motionless, that his good-natured companion became alarmed, and laying his hand upon the poor lad's arm, shook him gently as he said, Anyhow, my good fellow, there is no cause for you to break your heart with thinking about it all. "'talking about your poor mother and her love of you "'as made you turn as pale as a sheet, "'and natural enough, too, perhaps. "'But my notion that your brother is alive and well "'ought to comfort you, oughtn't it?' 
Michael opened his eyes, and fixing them on his companion, said, The joy of it is more than I can bear. And then, the tears bursting forth, he wept copiously. A timely relief for which he had great reason to be thankful. Well, well, I don't mind seeing you cry a little. That won't do you no harm. And thank goodness your color is coming back again. I declare I thought I had been the death of you, said his new friend. But I'll tell you something more, and that is the name of him as knows more about Miss Brotherton and your brother too, I'll be bold to say, than anybody in the whole country, and that's Parson Bell of Fairley. And where is Fairley? said Michael, starting up. How long shall I be in getting there? The hope is only hope yet, you know. There is no certainty. Edward, dear, dear Edward, is it God's pleasure that I should see him again in this world? Is it possible that such a heavenly dream can ever come true? Oh, how often have I sat upon the hill and watched the clouds, and thought that he was above them all. Poor boy! But twill be better still for a few years to come that he should be upon the earth along with you, won't it? Where is Fairley? reiterated Michael. How long shall I be in getting there? Longer than you'll like, my dear boy, replied the coachman. It's a good sixteen miles from this very house. I should not wonder if they was to charge seventeen, and you must not think of trying to compass that to-night, for you are not in any wise in a fit condition for it, changing colour as you do every minute. Your best course will be to rest here for the night, and set off again by times to-morrow morning, and that will bring you in easy by about the middle of the day, you know. Impossible, said Michael. I owe you more than I am able to thank you for, and I would be willing to show my gratitude by following your advice. Only, sir, I am quite sure I could not sleep a wink. And I don't think it would do me any good to lie tossing from side to side, unknowing, for certain, whether my own dear Teddy was alive or dead. So, if you please, I must set off directly, that I may know the best and the worst at once. I suppose at your age I should have done the same. Therefore, I won't pretend to quarrel with you for it, replied the good man. But I suppose it would be just prudent to call for an inkhorn and to set down a bit of paper the name of the good clergyman that you are to call upon, as well as his place of residence. There is no need of that, sir, said Michael. Parson Bell of Fairley are the words you said, and they, as well as all the rest you have spoken, seem as if they were stamped upon my very heart. But yet before I start, I should like to use the inkhorn too, that I might write a line or so to my good master. I know he will be troubled in his mind about me if I don't get back, and I don't know rightly how long it may be. God bless him, good man, continued Michael. It was he that had me taught to write, and he shan't be left with any doubts or fears upon his mind for want of a letter from me. This was a measure that the coachman greatly approved and observing that he was well known in the house and sure to be minded, he undertook to order the writing materials as well as something substantial by way of a supper. Declaring that though he had come into his young friend's wild scheme of walking off straight away for Fairley instead of putting up for the night, either where they were or at Leeds, he should not part with him without a quarrel if he refused to accept and do justice to the good cheer he should provide. This kindness on the part of the man who had so strongly influenced his destiny was both kindly intentioned and wisely devised. 
for greatly did the agitated young man stand in need of recruited strength and tranquillity before he set off upon a new expedition, which was to lead to information so vitally important to his happiness. Though it was somewhat against his inclination, he accepted the friendly invitation gratefully, and the materials for writing set before him, he addressed the following epistle to Mr. Thornton. Honored Master, your goodness to me in all ways would make any abuse of it on my part a heavy crime indeed. Too heavy, I think, for me to commit, or you to suspect me of. But I cannot be at the supper-table at Neckerby on Saturday night, according to my promise. A very strange thing has happened to me, dear Master, which may, perhaps, come to nothing, and in that case I know you will hear my story and pity me too much to think of anger. But if all I hope comes to pass, your generous heart will rejoice with me, and you will bless your own goodness for bringing me to the knowledge of the very greatest joy that ever fell to the lot of a human being by giving me this holiday. I am, honored master, your faithful and grateful servant, Michael Armstrong. Having finished his letter and committed it to the post, Michael felt somewhat more tranquil, and endeavored to assume with his new acquaintance an air of greater composure and self-possession. But his heart beat, his temples throbbed, his thoughts wandered, and when he and his friendly companion sat down to supper, the poor boy felt that he could almost as easily have swallowed the board itself as any portion of the substantial fare which was spread upon it. But he quaffed a long and refreshing draught from a pitcher of cold water, and putting, at the suggestion of the worthy coachman, a crust in his pocket, he sallied forth with the agitating consciousness that on the information of which he was in pursuit hung all his earthly hopes. His new friend shook his head as he felt his feverish hand and marked his heightened color and his eager eye. "'God bless you, boy,' said the good man. "'Remember, if you fall sick by the way, that my name is Richard Smithson, that I live at Milford near Ashley, and that I'll hold myself ready to come to you at a pinch if you should happen to have need of me. And here, Michael Armstrong, are three sovereigns that I give you to keep for two reasons. One is that you may use them in case you have need.' the other that if you don't want them I shall be sure to see you when you bring them back, and that you will do or I'll never trust a lad's face more. And now, good-bye. It is but a wildish sort of boy's trick, though, setting off this way at night when you ought to be in bed. The air and the walk will do me more good than all the beds in the world, replied Michael. God bless you, sir. See me you shall if I continue to live. And so saying, he strode forth into the night with a longing for greater space to breathe in than could be found in the kitchen of the royal oak. The boy was right as to the effect which this bodily exertion would produce upon him. The very darkness calmed him. He took his hat off that the cool air might bathe his temples with its dewy breath, and though his pace was rapid and scarcely relaxed for a moment during many miles, the action of his pulse became more healthy and the aching of his throbbing temples passed away. All he now seemed to fear was that his imagination should cheat him into the persuasion that all he wished was true. Edward! Fanny! For of her identity with Miss Brotherton's protégé he could hardly doubt, when he remembered the history of her departure from the Deep Valley. These names seemed to ring in his ears, and to be inscribed in starlight on the heavens as he raised his eyes towards them. And thus the sixteen miles were traversed before he had half chewed the cud of all the sweet thoughts that thronged upon his fancy. When he reached Fairley, it was still much too early to find anyone stirring, so Michael unceremoniously walked into a cart-shed, 
and, clambering up into a vehicle that had the sweet savor of newly carried hay to recommend it, he placed his bundle under his head, and despite both hopes and fears, fell into a sound sleep, nor waked till cocks, hens, cows, pigs, and ploughboys all joined in chorus to arouse him. End of chapter 27